0: Will you turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 10? 2 Corinthians 10. And just before we get started, we want to make sure everybody has a Bible. So the guys are going to pass out some Bibles. If you need one, get their attention and you will need a Bible to follow along. And those are marked for you at 2 Corinthians 10. And while they're doing that, we have just a short one-minute One-minute video to introduce what I'll be saying. Making headlines by the chain Payless Shoes. They held a grand opening of a luxury store with a different name but the same shoes and charged hundreds more for those same shoes. Customers paid. Here's ABC's Kana Whitworth. Behold, Palessi. We built a fake luxury store in Los Angeles and filled it with Payless Shoes. The guests at our grand opening party had no idea. Guests invited to check out what looked like a luxury shoe shop. They're elegant, sophisticated. I just think it's so classy. And I could tell it was made with high-quality material. A $35 shoe going for $645, <laughs> an 1,800% markup. Store owners sat on their heels as fashion influencers emptied their wallets. So I would pay 400 500 yeah. People are going to be like, <gasps> Where'd you get those? Those are amazing. Then, they're let in on the prank. These are actually from Payless. You've got to be kidding me. Shut up. Are you serious? But those shoppers were refunded their money and they got to keep the shoes. Well, I showed that because it demonstrates how our thinking is influenced by so-called Influencers people whose job it is to convince you regarding what's good and desirable and therefore valuable. That's done throughout our culture. So let's think for just a moment about what culture is and how it goes about that. Culture could be defined this way. It's the collective values of a society as expressed in its art, its media, and entertainment. Now, I think that's accurate, but doesn't account for how the things that are expressed in art and media and entertainment actually acquire their value. That's where the influencers come in. You see, they're not merely expressing what we value, they're shaping what we value. And very often, we just go along with whatever is currently considered cool or chic. Buying it, displaying it, wearing it, talking about it. Now, none of that would be a particular problem if what the culture presented as valuable was at the same time true and good and beautiful. But our cultural expressions are often, though not always, tainted by sin, and they represent worldliness rather than godliness. So to put that together, we need not only a definition of culture, we need a definition of worldliness. Worldliness is fallen values. Expressed in culture. And the Bible warns against worldly thinking. Famously in Romans 12, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The Bible emphasizes that our thinking will determine everything else about us. Proverbs 23 says, as a man thinks within himself, so is So important is this issue of how we think, then we're told to protect our minds. Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. And in the Bible, the heart is the control center of the person's thinking and choosing and feeling. In the book, Thinking, Loving, Doing, a call to glorify God with heart and mind, the author says, whatever gets your mind gets you. So one of the most important things we need to learn is how to guard, strengthen, and renew our minds because the battle against sin always starts in the mind. Our thinking will be either godly or worldly. And it will influence how we view everything and everyone. Now today, in our second to the last message in our series, what's God got to do with it? We're going to look at what God has to do with what we think. In particular, what he has to do with what we think about other people. Next week, we'll see what God has to do with what we think about ourselves. But Scripture says this, that we should regard no one from a worldly point of view. But in order for our minds to be reshaped so that we see people accurately as God sees them, We have to do what 2 Corinthians 10, to which I've asked you to turn, in verse 5 says. That last phrase in verse 5 says, We take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Let's ask God to help us as we endeavor to do that. Father, thank you now for this Lord's Day and this time in our worship of you. We thank you that we've been able to sing joyous songs of praise to you. We thank you that we've been able to, to give back to you as you first given to us. Now, Lord, we are looking into sacred scripture. And help us to give it the attention that it deserves then. Help us to approach it with open hearts and with clear and attentive minds. Use what your word says for the purpose for which you gave it to change your people into your image. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's see together from 2 Corinthians 10 how the culture can negatively shape our thinking, even our thinking about ministry and the way church goes. And then we'll use that as then an example of how it shapes our thinking in other areas, including how we see people in general. Now, every week we insert an outline in your program. If you don't have that out as yet, I encourage you to take it out now. And we say, first of all, that Christ changes what we think about ministry. Now, I say that about ministry because the context of 2 Corinthians 10 is that Paul, who wrote it, is having to defend his ministry against various accusations from people in the congregation in Corinth. So just think about that for a moment. The great apostle Paul who founded the church in Corinth is having to write to that church to defend himself. So that well-known verse in uh, in chapter 10 and verse 5 about taking every thought captive was first used regarding how Paul goes about his ministry. And it was a ministry designed to see people's thinking transformed from worldly thinking to godly thinking. And the method for doing that, seeing people's minds changed away from worldliness and toward godliness, the method for that is radically different from what the world would pursue. That's what Paul's saying there. That's my aim, and this is how I go about it. My objective is to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Not just my own thoughts, certainly starting there, but then those to whom I minister. And that aim affects the way I go about it. And that's why verse 4 says this. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. You see, friends, when Christ changes the way we think about ministry, we come to realize a couple of things that I have in the outline. The first is this, that ministry is to be done God's way. Paul would write in Romans, the gospel is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. So when he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 4, the weapons we fight with have divine power to demolish strongholds, that's what he's talking about. The weapons we use are the word of God. The wep- weapons we use are the gospel of Christ. The same Paul who wrote that in Romans had earlier written to this same church in 1 Corinthians, saying, Christ sent me to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. You see, for Paul, using man-made techniques and ingenuity, detracted from the glory of God. And so he said in that first letter to The church in Corinth, my message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration, again, of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. But there are always going to be people who will tell you there's a better, more efficient, more successful way to do ministry. Find out what people want and give it to them. And I'm here to tell you that works. It works if your objective is to gather a crowd. If your your objective is to bloat rather than grow people, then it works. But if your objective is to bring glory to God and to demonstrate that it's his power that transforms people, it not only doesn't work, it's entirely antithetical to it. We have churches all over America who have succumbed to using worldly methods to supposedly do God's work. It's been a temptation going all the way back 2,000 years ago. In our country, it really, uh, it really got revved up in the late 70s with a church just outside of Chicago. Chicago. Some of you are familiar with Willow Creek Community Church in South Barrington, Illinois. And in the late 70s, Bill Hybels, who founded that church, founded it this way by his own testimony. He did a market survey of the community. And he asked them, why don't you go to church? (laughs) And they said things like, the sermons are too long. All right, check, shorter sermons. The music's too old. Check. We'll give you the kind of music you want. It's boring. Check. We'll make it entertaining. Took all of that, put it together, put a service together based upon the desires now, mind you, of the world. And the result was a mega church. And not just a mega church in South Barrington. But now you have Several thousand churches that are part of the Willow Creek Association, some in our areas, just area just within a few miles of us, that grow very large by following a marketing strategy approach. One of the accusations made against Paul was that he did not speak like the professionals who were highly regarded in that culture. And so if you were doing a marketing survey in the time of Paul, the survey would say, what do we want? We want people who speak in the way that the Greek rhetoricians do. But Paul didn't do that. Verse 10 of chapter 10. Some say his letters are weighty and forceful, but in person he's unimpressive and his speaking amounts to nothing. So he's tough when he's behind a keyboard, or in his case, you know, behind a a quill or a pen. But when he's face to face, not so much. He's meek and mild. And his oratory doesn't compare to the rhetoricians who are our heroes. Now, friends, understand Paul was very educated and he had the ability to hold his own with anyone. The question for Paul was not ability But philosophy, Paul's philosophy of ministry was not centered on him and his techniques, but on the power of the gospel to change people. And he did not want to obscure that by drawing people to himself. When verse 4 speaks of demolishing strongholds, it's referring to a classic form of warfare in the ancient world. A prosperous city would not only build a stout wall for its security, but somewhere inside the wall it might also build a stronghold, that is, a massively fortified tower that could be defended by relatively few few soldiers. So even if the walls of the city were breached by the enemy, the defending forces could retreat to the stronghold and make a final defense there. Once the stronghold was taken, though, the battle was over. And so we, Paul says, demolish The last stakeout for sin. But we demolish it, not with the weapons of the world. Verse 5 says we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. We Demolish these strongholds and here's how we do it. The book of Proverbs said one who is wise can go up against the city of the mighty and pull down the stronghold in which they trust. How do we do it? Verse five, we demolish arguments. The word translated arguments refers to thoughts or plans. We demolish thoughts, the plans of those who don't know Christ. So when it speaks of arguments, it's not saying he always wins the debate, but rather the gospel destroys the way people think. It demolishes their sinful thought patterns, the mental structures by which they live their lives in rebellion against God. The spiritual weapons Paul uses have God's divine power to tear down every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. Christ changes the way we think about everything, including in 2 Corinthians 10, how we think about ministry. We come to realize that it's to be done God's way. And, in the outline, that it's to be done for God. God. In contrast to his opponents, Paul demonstrated a humility that was due to his utter dependence on God, not his own prowess. So in verse 17 of chapter 10, he quotes the prophet Jeremiah saying, Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So the boasting will not be about my church, if you're Paul, or if you're one following Paul's example. The boasting will be about the Lord and what the Lord has done by using the Lord's methods. But that's not how the in-crowd in Corinth rolled. There was a group of influencers in Corinth called the sophists. It's from the Greek word Sophia, which means wisdom. So the sophists were the wise ones. New Testament scholar D.A. Carson says this. They were prominent throughout Greece and perhaps nowhere more so than in Corinth. Their approach included commending themselves, parading their accomplishments and displaying their oratory. They aimed to collect a growing number of disciples who hung on their words and paid large sums for the privilege of learning at their feet. The more accomplished the sophist, the more he could boast and the greater the charge he could levy. Sophisticated haughtiness became a virtue, self-admiration a strength. The sophist poleman, quote, used to talk to cities as a superior, to kings as not inferior, and to gods as an equal. Philostratus testifies that, quote, a sophist is put out when giving a speech and sees a serious-looking audience and tardy praise and no clapping. This attitude prevailed in circles beyond the sophists. The Roman historian Tacitus explains, quote, in the scorn of fame was implied the scorn of virtue. Great leaders not infrequently wrote memoirs of their exploits that were nothing more than self eulogies, detailing the triumphs gained, the battles won, the great speeches delivered, the wisdom displayed, the captives subdued. That was what the world did. And in Corinth, that's what the church wanted. And in America, there's what the world does, and there's what the church emulates. And because the Corinthian church had imbibed that popular approach, they were vulnerable then to people who came along after the Apostle Paul had founded that church, and these people offered them what they wanted to hear. You remember the great Apostle Paul warned, That people will heap to themselves teachers who will tell them what their itching ears want to hear. So, friends, Christ changes what we think about everything, changes what we think about ministry, and in turn, in your outline, He changes what we then think about ministers. He changes what we think about ministry. What is it and how's it done? That in turn means he changes our thinking about ministers. You see, what you think about ministry will determine what kind of ministers you want. Dr. Kevin Bowder of Central Baptist Seminary in Minneapolis wrote a helpful series of articles this past summer making the case that teaching pastors should pursue a seminary education. He said that the requirement of seminary And I say requirement, and he explains this as well in his articles. It's a soft requirement. It's not mandatory, but highly encouraged for the reasons that he gave. That that flows from what it is that such a pastor is to do. He said this, different churches develop different visions of pastoral ministry. He said, I learned this the hard way during my first senior pastorate. The church had experienced its growth under a pastor whose primary ministry was run-and-gun evangelism. (laughs) Under another pastor, it focused on emotional healing, which meant providing comfort to both the grieving and aggrieved, and helping the dysfunctional to feel that they were normal. A third pastor had brought a strong emphasis upon biblical teaching. By the time I arrived, the congregation was divided about evenly among adherents to these three visions. Each was trying to tug the church in its own direction, and each was frustrated because its initiatives were blocked by the other two-thirds of the church. By the way, this goes on in churches all over the place. You have a pastor for a period of time, and he wants to pursue whatever it is, and then somebody else who pursues something else. And There's no cohesion amongst the congregation as to what a vision for a church should be, and therefore what the qualifications for a pastor should be. Bowder goes on to say none of these is the New Testament model of pastoral ministry. According to Ephesians 4, a good pastor will manifest genuine wisdom in bringing the scriptures to bear upon the issues of life. He will serve as a shepherd who guides souls through the process of conforming their lives to the word of God. As an overseer, he will feel the weight of having to answer for the welfare of these souls. He will invest himself in a profound understanding of the scriptures for without a word from God, he has nothing to say. He will also invest himself in the lives of those to whom he ministers, for without their ears he has no one to whom to say it. He will not be interested in precipitating crises in the lives of his flock, not even for the sake of gaining decisions. He will, however, labor to feed the flock so that it flourishes and grows toward maturity. He will also protect the flock from the wolves that prey upon it. And then he goes on to say, therefore, a particular kind of training is necessary. So what kind of minister you want depends on what kind of ministry it is. What kind of ministers they wanted in Corinth depended on what they saw the ministry to be. If it's one that's done God's way and for God, then you want ministers whose, I say in the outline, power comes from God. It doesn't come, the effectiveness does not come from a gimmicky, a gimmicky look, a gimmicky anything, humor, being a stand-up comedian, a slick presentation. It doesn't come from going out of your way to show that you're hip, that you're cool, that you're with it. It comes from delivering the Bible accurately in a way that people can understand and applying it to their lives. Because the power is not in the preacher, it's in the word of God. Christ changes our thinking about ministers. Their power comes from God, their effectiveness comes from God. Secondly, their reward comes from God. The sophists not only boasted in their oratory, but also in their remuneration. They demanded pay, and they made sure everyone understood that they were well worth every bit of it. Now, Paul had his needs met by tent making. Many of you know that he worked to make tents often, but also by the offerings of God's people from the churches that Paul helped found. While he was in Corinth, the Bible says this, when Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. So it appears that Silas and Timothy brought offerings from the Macedonian churches that supplied for Paul's needs, and therefore, while he was in Corinth, he was able to devote himself entirely to this preaching. He could have accepted pay, but at least at this point, he didn't need it from the church in Corinth. He actually says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 that it is perfectly proper for pastors to receive pay for their their work, but he didn't need it here. But it opened him to the charge that he was inferior. The fact that he didn't accept money became a problem. Can you believe that? Chapter 11 and verse 5. Take a look at chapter 11 and verse 5. He says this, I do not think that I am in the least inferior to those super apostles. These are people who have come into the church and they have said that we are more qualified to lead you than Paul. But Paul says, I'm not inferior to them. I may indeed be untrained as a speaker. And again, he was very well educated, but not in Greek rhetoric. I may indeed be untrained that way, but I do have knowledge We have made this perfectly clear to you in every way. Was it a sin for me to lower myself in order to elevate you by preaching the gospel to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by receiving support from them so as to serve you. And when I was with you and needed something, I was not a burden to anyone. For the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied what I needed. I have kept myself from being a burden to you in any way, and I will continue to do so. So Carson says, on the one hand, Paul is charged with the sin of refusing to receive financial help from the Corinthians, who felt slighted because of this policy, and they questioned Paul's credentials as a result. Surely, the Corinthians reasoned, a great apostle, a truly significant teacher, would charge in proportion to his worth. So if Paul not only refuses to charge, but turns down every offer, it must be that he's a counterfeit. What kind of warped thinking? But see, Paul understood and Paul modeled that true ministers are not in it for themselves and they're certainly not in it for money. So Christ changes the way we think about ministry and about ministers, their powers from God, their reward from God, and their calling comes from God. That is... What qualifies them is not that they have some personal impressiveness, but rather their God-developed character, their devotion to him, their devotion to his word and to his people. See, friends, it's very tempting for our churches to absorb definitions of leadership that are based on worldly values. I saw this. Article some years ago that makes that point in a slightly humorous way. It's in a memorandum form, and it's a memorandum to Jesus of Nazareth, written from Palestine Management Consultants. Thank you for submitting the resumes of the 12 men you have picked for management positions in your new organization. All of them have now taken our battery of tests, and we have not only run the results through our computer, but also arranged personal interviews for each of them with our psychologist and vocational aptitude consultant. The profiles of all tests are included, and you'll want to study them carefully. As part of our service, we will make some general comments. These are given as a result of staff consultations and come without any additional fee. It is the staff opinion that most of your nominees are lacking in background, education, and vocational aptitude for the type of enterprise you're undertaking. They do not have the team concept. We recommend you continue your search. Peter is emotionally unstable and given to fits of temper. Andrew has absolutely no qualities of leadership. The brothers James and John place personal interest above company loyalty. Thomas has a skeptical attitude that would tend to undermine morale. It's our duty to tell you that Matthew has been blacklisted by the Greater Jerusalem Better Business Bureau. James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, have radical leanings and show a high score on the manic-depressive scale. Only one shows great potential. Ability, resourcefulness, a business mind meets people well, ambitious, highly motivated. We recommend Judas Iscariot as your controller and right-hand man. You think about that, though. That's the way we size people up, isn't it? And not just in ministry, in general, we size people up, and we size them up and evaluate them very often on worldly criteria. What we think is desirable, friends, will determine how we view people. So we'll view them as, do they have those desired characteristics? If so, I want to befriend them. If so, I want to be around them. If not, I move on. Let me just, you know, I'm going from preaching to meddling here. But you've had a little bit of opportunity to interact with each other, just a little bit. After we're done here, we'll have a lot of opportunity to do that during our refreshment time. To whom do you gravitate? Do you have just a a select group of people that meet your criteria? Do you get around and talk to as many people as you can, get to know as many people as you can, no matter their background? no matter their socioeconomic status, should be convicting for us. Because friends, if that's not the case, then it indicates that we've imbibed the worldly evaluation of other people. Jesus said this, When you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you'll be repaid. Now, do you see what Jesus is saying there? You don't choose your crowd based on what you get out of it. Rather, but when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. See, these are people who can't repay you. But you're doing it because you love them, not because you love yourself and what you can get out of a relationship. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. So, dear friends, this idea of evaluating life, evaluating ministry in the case of Second Corinthians chapters 10 through 13, this whole thing goes all the way to the end of the book evaluating ministry, or just evaluating people in general. It all depends on what we have filled our minds with, what kind of principles dictate the way we look at life and people. So John Piper offers a couple of suggestions for winning the battle of our minds. How we view other people, but not just that, just how we think. He says, first of all, don't believe everything you think. Not just don't believe everything you hear, don't believe everything you think. Be skeptical of the stuff that pops into your mind. He says, we naturally feel that if we think something, it must be true because it comes from within us. Just because you think something does not make it true. Many different suggestions can come into the mind. The world puts suggestions into our minds that are false. And we're bombarded with those false ideas all the time. And of course, Satan makes suggestions all the time. But your problem is much deeper than Satan. He says, everybody has a mental illness. We're all mentally ill. The mental illness is called sin. And our minds are broken by sin, which means we cannot trust ...what we think ourselves. Jeremiah seventeen nine, ...the heart is deceitful above all things... ...desperately sick, desperately wicked... ...who can understand it? We have an amazing ability to lie to ourselves. Just because you get a thought... ...doesn't mean it's correct. This is the reason why we have so many... ...fallen Christian leaders... ...because all sin begins with a lie. The Bible says Satan is... quote ...the father of lies... ...and if he can get you to believe a lie... He can get you to sin. Anytime you sin, you're thinking that you know better than God. God has said this, but what about that? And so you have to question what you think. First John 1 John 1.8 says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And we deceive ourselves all the time. We all have blind spots. We can't always tell the truth. Because we don't stop to really think. Frequently, we make snap judgments. We fail to notice important details. We all have more background biases than we realize. One of the big reasons why you need to not believe everything you think, now hear this, is that we see what we want to see. He says, I read whatever I can about the brain, and one of the things I learned is that the optic nerve, which is the only nerve that goes directly to your brain, actually sends more impulses from your brain forward than from your eye backwards. Which means your brain is telling you what you see. You're already preconditioned. That's why you can't put four people, you can put four people in an accident and each of them see something different. We must remind ourselves and teach others not to believe everything we think. Be skeptical of whether or not you're truly a reliable guide. But you know who is an absolutely reliable guide? Our God and his word. And if your mind is shaped by his word, it will train and discipline your thinking. So Piper suggests don't believe everything you think. And then he says this lastly, that you guard your mind from garbage. (laughs) Garbage in, garbage out. Guard your mind from garbage. Now, I'm not, you may be relieved to know, going to go on the usual pastoral rant about the Internet, TV, all of that. I'm not going to rant. I'm just going to remind. 98% of it is junk. And it's not healthy for your mind. And you don't need it. And you've got more important things to feast your mind upon. So friends, guard your mind from garbage. And guarding your mind from garbage begins with getting rid of the garbage that you use your discretionary time to take in. And that garbage, yes, is in what we see. Yes, on TV, on the internet in what we listen to. Think about the music that you listen to. Think about what it says. Is it godly? Is it Philippians chapter 4 and verse 8? It gives a list of virtuous things. If there be any things that are excellent, if there be any things that are beautiful, any things that are praiseworthy, gives a long list and think on these kinds of things. So get the garbage out. That means guard your mind from the garbage. Get the garbage out of your presence and then replace that with godly thinking. The best way to do that is to saturate yourself with the word of God. Reading the word of God every day taking advantage of every opportunity you have to study and learn the Word of God. Times like this, midweek, discussing application of the Word of God in our community groups. And all of this, I submit to you, friends, is because of our take-home truth. Christ changes how we evaluate really everything, but in this case, how we evaluate others. Let's ask ourselves honestly whether we evaluate others, whether it be ministry, whether it be people that we interact with. Has our evaluation of those people come from the world or from God's word? Let's bow now and ask God to help us. Our Father, we thank you again for gathering us. And thank you, Lord, for instructing us in your word about our frailty, about our sinfulness, about our vulnerability, to absorbing what the world offers, to allowing our minds to be shaped by what the world tells us, by what the world presents, and then we mimic that. Lord, help us as your people to truly be holy people, set apart people, and that setting apart begins with a renewed mind. So thank you, Lord God for your Holy Spirit that chides us when we sin so that when we think about these issues and whether or not what we allow into our minds and our ears, what we see, whether or not that's pleasing to you, Lord, we're convicted when it's not. I ask you to help me, help my brothers and sisters, help us to see the seriousness of this issue. You tell us above all else, guard your heart. And so, Lord, help us to take that seriously this week. May we get rid of those things that are superfluous; they're 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 not helpful to us. They may not be particularly harmful; they're just a waste of time. And certainly, Lord, help us to get rid of those things that are displeasing to you, so that we can use the time that we have to grow in you, to have minds that are shaped by you, and therefore we live for you. We ask you to do this, and we will give you the glory. We praise pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.